Today's guest says that with temperatures rising and the risk of disasters growing, our world is increasingly vulnerable. Most people see disasters as freak natural events that are unpredictable, but that is simply not the case. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 29 of the Resilient Journey podcast, sponsored by ClearRisk. I'm your host, Mark Hoffman, and today I'm joined by author, speaker, and professor, Dr. Samantha Montano. Listen as Dr. Montano speaks of inconvenient truths related to emergency management post-Katrina, and discusses changes in our climate that should cause risk managers and resilience professionals to sit up and take notice. I ask her why certain demographics deny climate change and how to combat skepticism. We'll hear this and more from Dr. Samantha Montano right after this from my friends at ClearRisk. Navigating changes in the risk landscape can be daunting without access to the right tools. ClearRisk's centralized risk management solution streamlines the process of data collection and analysis helping customers make impactful decisions and focus on big picture initiatives. ClearRisk provides a highly configurable, easy to use solution that gives our customers the confidence to inform decision-making and proactively optimize risk in their organizations. Effective risk management begins with data you can trust. Learn more at clearrisk.com. Samantha, welcome to the Resilient Journey podcast. So happy to have you here. Uh, Take a minute before we get started and tell the listeners about yourself. Sure. So I am a disaster researcher. Uh, I'm also an assistant professor of emergency management at Massachusetts Maritime Academy. Um, And I do a lot of work advocating for emergency management policy reform, changes to how we do emergency management so that we can better help people before, during, and after disasters. Well, I'm excited to have you here. And a lot of what I'm going to ask today comes from my experience in reading your book, Disasterology, which is fascinating. It's a great read. Um, and I would encourage people to, to pick up a copy. Uh, I got mine on an e-reader through Kobo. So uh, there's all kinds of different formats for it. So, But before I get into the meat of those questions, explain how you came up with the word disasterology. Yeah, so uh, I really started becoming acquainted with the term while I was in graduate school. So my master's and doctorate are in emergency management from North Dakota State University. And I had done disaster work, uh, mostly in Louisiana for several years before I went to graduate school. So I had been kind of immersed in the disaster world. Um, but more so in the nonprofit sector. When I went to grad school, I kind of switched over and was doing a lot more kind of uh, like public sector emergency management. And when I, people asked me what I was studying in grad school, and I said emergency management, I got a lot of blank stares. <laughs> they, you know, people didn't really know what that was. Um, there was a lot of, oh, so you're a firefighter or like FEMA, like <laughs> vague kind of uh, interpretations of what that meant. And so uh, in the course of doing a lot of reading in grad school, I saw that Um, a couple of disaster researchers many, many decades ago had kind of been talking within some research about whether or not 
the field of disaster research had kind of risen to becoming what we could call disasterology, kind of give it that term. At the time, they had concluded, no, it, it hadn't. But I saw that term and I really saw utility in that term, especially for kind of talking to the general public about mm -hmm. what disaster research is and kind of giving our field kind of a, a more catchy name that people could really quickly kind of identify with and, and understand what we were doing. I, I can appreciate it because as a longtime business continuity person, I would, people would ask me what I do and I'd say, well, I'm involved in business continuity and I get those same <laughs> blank stares. You've accomplished something with that word and, and hats off to you. There are so many things in the book that I like. I'm going to try to get to as many of these as I can. You said that post-Katrina, the people of New Orleans just needed so much help and that you were surprised by that because you were living um, in Maine at the time and you felt like if the situation down there had been that serious, that surely they would have reported that on the Today Show. And so my question is, you know, so many of us get our information, and I'll use air quotes around that, from the media. So talk about the media's inject in a disaster, or in this case, a catastrophe, and how things like the lifespan of a news story or sensationalizing the news, um, or even a network's slant or even misinformation can have an impact on the response to a disaster. Yeah, I, you, you know, so the first time that I really experienced this was Katrina. I was in high school uh, in Maine, as you said. So I was pretty young, wasn't like paying a ton of attention to the news. Again, keep in mind, this is 2005, kind of before Twitter, before kind of that constant online social media presence. And so any news that I was seeing about Katrina came from, you know, the Today Show being on in the morning and like maybe the nightly news kind of in passing around dinner time. And certainly there was extensive coverage during the actual response to Katrina once the levees broke, especially, um, you know, certainly questions about uh, the quality and accuracy of a lot of that coverage. But as, you know, time moved away from that response and into this, you know, decade plus long recovery, there was this huge drop off in news. And so by the time um, I had the opportunity to go volunteer in New Orleans. I was a little bit kind of skeptical about how much help there really was, just because I wasn't seeing that as being this top story on the news anymore. Um, and then, of course, I get to New Orleans and it's, you know, everything is destroyed. <laughs> Everybody needs help. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was my first experience. But certainly... Uh, in disaster since then and uh, through research, you know, it's really, there, there are some really clear patterns in how the media covers disasters. Um, so like I said, the majority of that focus on uh, media coverage occurs during that response, which is obviously really important. That's when life-saving information is being dispersed. Um, but you have these exceptionally long recoveries that are in many ways even more difficult for communities than the actual response to the disaster. Um, and there is very, very, very little news coverage of that recovery. Um, we also, when we're looking at media coverage, we want to look at which events are being covered. Uh, we saw this with Hurricane Maria uh, or the uh, the disparities in media coverage between Hurricane Harvey and uh, a month later, Hurricane Maria, where 
you know, they've done an uh, analysis of uh, the news coverage and you see this just unbelievable amount of coverage, rightly so, of Harvey. And then you see minimal coverage of Maria until there was a political uh, impetus to start covering that catastrophe. And of course, Maria had significantly worse damage than Harvey. So it should have been the opposite, right? Um, So, you know, there's all these problems like framing of disasters and how media talks about who's responsible for disasters. So it really hugely affects people's understanding of these events. And that's a good example of the uh, the terms you used in the book were racism and classism in the emergency management sector. And I was going to ask you if it's getting better, but clearly it doesn't appear that that's the case. Yeah, you know, it's hard. I I do think there is much more awareness kind of generally of the role that racism and classism play in the creation of disasters and how response and recovery unfolds. There have been some really great research, um, some government reports that have started to really kind of outline um, where all of those disparities exist. Um, And Uh, Some people certainly in the field are are very interested in addressing those issues, but, um, you know, we still have a very, very long way to go in in actually, um, you know, having more equitable uh, responses and recoveries. I want to switch uh, our focus here a little bit to specifically talking about climate change. And my favorite quote of the book was the first several words of the introduction. I mean, I, I, I don't mean to say that it all went downhill from there, but the opening quote <laughs> says it all. You said, at the start of every disaster movie, there's a scientist being ignored. I love that. And it's true. It's, it's the pattern. And then you talk about some statistics around temperature change. Uh, for example, uh, temperature has risen 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit since 1900. And in the U.S., it's expected to increase another two and a half degrees by 2050. And you admit in your text that these numbers don't sound like a lot. Um, But explain what that means in practical terms to us as humans and to the planet in general. Yeah, I, you know, I think the easiest way to kind of understand this is that we have built our world, our society, our buildings, our infrastructure for one temperature, right? Um, and now the temperature is changing. Our The natural environment around us is changing. And so everything that we've built is going to be affected in some way. Um, and we need to change the way that we've built everything to be able to adapt to this new world that we're living in. Um, and that is, again, those numbers can feel really small, but when you start looking at what those kind of localized impacts of those changes actually are, you can see that these are are huge, huge changes, right? When we start talking about sea level rise, right? uh, You can see that, you know, X number of feet of rise in certain communities means that entire roads, entire neighborhoods, entire homes are underwater. Uh, It can mean entire 
you know, water and sewer infrastructure being underwater. And when you start multiplying that in every single community, in every single country all over the world, I think people can start to see where we have this really, really huge problem. Um, and again, this affects us in, in kind of every way. I'm obviously most focused on the more kind of acute disaster impacts, but mm-hmm. we're talking here about you know, huge changes to our food and water systems, uh, you know, looking at how those effects can potentially lead to increases in conflict, right? There's all of these rippling repercussions, some of which, you know, we can game out kind of more easily than others uh, that are already around the world changing uh, people's day-to-day lives. Um, And again, depending on how much change we actually see, depending on whether or not the global leaders come together to, uh, you know, minimize uh, carbon emission, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of dependent on how that part of the climate change problem goes uh, for us in emergency management to really know exactly what we're dealing with in terms of, you know, acute and, and more tangible impacts. I want to talk to you about the skepticism around climate change. I want to ask it in maybe a different way than you've been asked before. Uh, you, you talked in the book about the movie Mad Max, and I'm wondering if you feel that Hollywood, in a way, is an enemy to good emergency management. And what I mean is, do you think that somewhere in the back of people's minds, they expected COVID to look like the movie Outbreak, or they will only take climate change seriously if it starts to look like the movie The Day After Tomorrow? Is, is it setting like sort of false expectations for people? Yeah, this is such an interesting question. Actually, um, one of my colleagues, John Carr, and I have been uh, for the past couple of years actually researching disaster movies and really trying to look at what messages Hollywood is kind of sending with how they depict disasters in film. Um, And what we've found so far is that there are a lot of myths about human behavior in disasters that are depicted in these films. So, you know, they'll show people running around looting and panicking and being helpless. Um, you know, this really strong antisocial behavior that is very unusual, we know from research in real life disasters. So Hollywood just in that element is really painting this picture of kind of chaos when disaster happens. Um, we also see a nearly complete absence of emergency managers in disaster films. There are a handful, like four or five movies that have been made in the past 20 years that even mention FEMA or have an emergency manager in them. Uh, When they do depict emergency management uh, agencies, there tends to be kind of a a glorified version of them, shall we say. Um, So there really isn't an opportunity in those films for people to even learn that emergency management exists and that there are people whose job it is to um, be responding and preparing for these. Um, One thing interesting that I think Hollywood actually does do uh, somewhat of a better job with is there have been some pretty major disaster films that have 
um, really pointed out the role of uh, development and uh, development decisions in uh, contributing to disaster impacts. Uh, so like in the movie San Andreas, for example, obviously you're dealing with a natural hazard. But there's a whole, uh, you know, sub storyline there of uh, the, you know, developer not building the building correctly. And so it collapses. Uh, so there is some discussion in in these films about the causes of disasters, not in all of them, but in some of them, which is interesting. Um, but certainly, uh, you know, unless you as kind of a, a normal person out in the world, unless you have personally experienced a disaster firsthand, your two sources of information are really going to be media coverage, which we already talked about those issues. Um, And then your other option are disaster films. So yeah, you know, inaccuracies and kind of uh, misperceptions of how disasters play out in those movies certainly can contribute to people misunderstanding what a response actually looks like in real life. So why do you think that there are so many skeptics when it comes to admitting climate change is real? Do you think it, does it all come down to finances and capitalism over everything else? Uh, Yeah, I mean, largely, I mean, it it primarily, in my opinion, has to do with the, uh, you know, the way that the oil and gas industry has built a narrative around, uh, you know, climate not being real, um, the role that their finances have played in uh, supporting politicians, um, you know, that I, I think at this point really is kind of the root of why there are people who still don't understand that climate is real when, you know, the evidence is extremely clear. So I want to ask you something that might be a little bit controversial, but it's something that I've always wondered about. And I wonder if you have any insights into this. So I ask this as a white Christian male with a very conservative upbringing. All right. So I, I know of what I speak. I would like, (laughs) I would like to know why you think that so many people of faith, those who seem to identify themselves as an evangelical American Christian would fall into the category of being so skeptical about climate change. Do you have any insights into that? Yeah, um, actually I do. So I, I don't know if you're familiar with her work at all, Dr. Catherine Hayhoe. So uh, Dr. Hayhoe is absolutely phenomenal. Um, she's a, a climate scientist and she herself uh, is Christian and uh, works in Texas. And she has for many years actually studied this question that you're asking of um, how can climate scientists communicate with evangelical Christians and make, uh, you know, help them understand how uh, the climate is changing. And she has done really incredible work, sometimes going church to church in Texas, speaking to um, different congregations uh, and kind of telling her personal story and being able to say, look, I am a Christian, but I'm also a climate scientist. And I know that it can sometimes feel like the Bible is contradictory to what climate science tells us, but actually they're not. And this is how I have been able to um, continue within my faith and keep my faith and also do this incredibly important uh, work in 
climate research. Um, and she she has a new book out. Actually, it's called Saving Us. Um, and uh, again, she's one of the top <laughs> climate scientists in the world. Um, and I, you know, she's been really successful in reaching that particular audience because she is a member of that group. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, it's that kind of thing is very slow going, right? It, it really does take going kind of from church to church, meeting with people face to face, taking the time of really explaining. Um, I, I think also like uh, finding ways to connect with church leadership and have this narrative kind of changed um, and, and integrated at a kind of a higher level is the way that you move that process along kind of more quickly. Um, but it, it can be done. She, she's evidence of that. Well, that's very interesting. I'm glad you had some insight into that. Cause I always, I've always wondered why that particular demographic had that view and I never understood it. So thanks for, for sharing those insights. You also talk about the fact that risk assessments need to be based on future projections, and we're, we're still in the climate change area here, uh, but it's hard to know which projections to focus on, uh, particularly for some of the longer term projections. So give some advice to risk managers here. Uh, what should we be focusing on and what kind of horizon scanning should they be paying attention to? How, how do we transition this topic now into the specifics of our business? Yeah, you know, this is a really challenging question, right? Because so much is dependent on what that global climate action actually looks like. Um, My general advice here is to look at your kind of more local community, wherever you're working. So the IPCC, the National Climate Assessment in the United States, some of these bigger kind of uh, summary climate reports that come out every couple of years, um, we're starting to see a shift in those reports to be more regional. Historically, they've been very kind of like high level global averages. And we're we're getting there with the science where we can be more specific to certain regions, um, which I think is going to be really, really helpful, particularly in the US, the national climate assessment, the next one that comes out, uh, a much greater regional focus across the country that I think will be able to give people a more kind of specific idea of what kind of impacts and to what extent uh, they'll be experiencing where they're located. Um, So that change, I think, is coming. Uh, Past that, you know, I think it it takes a lot of legwork. Um, I think it takes reaching out to scientists in your area who are studying these and have kind of more on-the-ground insights. Thinking, you know, at the same time that you're having to think really locally about impacts, obviously you are also having to think more broadly, right? We live in a world that is interconnected globally. The effects on one side of the world can affect the other. Um, So you kind of have to, you know, chew gum and juggle all at the same time here. Um, And it it takes having, uh, you know, within your company or, or within your agency, I think one of the key things here is having at least one person dedicated to doing this for your organization, ideally more than one person, because a lot of this just takes time to go through the data, to go through the research that's out there, 
Um, you know, it, it's not something that you can just kind of click a button and be done with. It, it's something that takes a concerted effort over time. It, it's this real kind of continuous process. And I think some of the practical impacts on business are not that difficult to, to figure out. For example, you talk about the number of major winter storms uh, in the second half of the 20th century going at a clip of two to one compared to the first half of the 20th century. You talk about, uh, I forget the term you used, was it sunny day flooding in some neighborhoods mm -hmm. where the water levels right. are, are rising? And so for businesses that are in traditional storm areas, whether it's along the southern coast of the U.S. or, you know, even up in that Carolina coast, or I would assume Tornado Alley, or, you know, I was, I was going to kind of stop there, but it's really almost anywhere because winter storms are increasing, summer storms are increasing. The impact of weather on business from a sustainability standpoint can't be ignored. Right, right. Let's just talk about one other thing uh, related to business resilience. Are you seeing either business leaders or maybe boards start to address climate change uh, around their sustainability, whether it's a sustainability or interruptions to their supply chain or their own business operations? Are you starting to see some progress there? A little bit. Yeah, um, it, it definitely, you know, more so than like 10 years ago, um, you definitely hear it more frequently. I know just kind of anecdotally, I get asked to uh, speak or, or consult with various folks who are kind of all of a sudden realizing this is going to be a big deal. So what I would say is that there it's kind of more on people's radar now. Um, and I think that People are kind of still at that stage, though, generally where they are kind of thinking, hmm, this is a big problem, but we're not exactly sure what to do about it or not exactly sure how to go about addressing it. So um, I, I think we're definitely headed in a trajectory, though, where this is going to be kind of front and center with, with how most businesses are thinking about their future. I think COVID has also... Um, you know, contributed to the private sector thinking about resilience and how they're, they need to be more flexible and have those business continuity plans um, and be able to change with uh, various conditions. So for those out there who say, yeah, this is something that we should be considering, but I don't know where to start. Start with disasterology, start with your book, but where else would you point them? Um, yeah, so I, there are a lot of really great resources out there. Um, I really think the kind of biggest thing to do is to hire somebody to do business continuity, if that's, uh, you know, something that you can do for your organization. Again, I think having that dedicated person there who has expertise, uh, and who knows what you know, what that path forward looks like for your particular organization is kind of the best way to approach it. All right. This is uh, really good information. Samantha, thank you for doing this today. Um, I'll get you out of here on this. People want to connect with you or want to learn more about the whole topic. How can they reach out? Yeah. So you can find me on Twitter. Uh, my handle is uh, at Sam L. Montano. Uh, and then I also have a website, www.disaster-ology.com, which has all kinds of resources. You can find the book on there. I have a monthly newsletter that I send out. Um, so you can sign up for that on there as well. 
And uh, I have not seen the newsletter yet, but I have seen the book. And if it reads as easily as the book, I'm sure it's very consumable. And uh, once again, thanks for taking the time to do this today. It was a pleasure to have you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. A special thanks to my guest today, Dr. Samantha Montano. Be sure to get a copy of her book, Disasterology, at your favorite bookstore or anywhere you buy books online. It is a great read. You know, I'm honored to be a Clear Risk partner, and I'd like to thank them for sponsoring the Resilient Journey podcast. Next week, you're in for another treat, as my guest is the CEO of Crisis Ally, Alexandra Hoffman. When one Hoffman isn't enough, we bring in another. It's a fascinating conversation about leadership in resilience. So join us, won't you, as we continue our resilient journey.